Welcome to First Reading, the Old Testament lectionary podcast for preachers and all other lovers of the Hebrew Scriptures. I'm Tim McNinch. And I'm Rachel Wren. This week, we'll be covering Jeremiah 1, the lectionary text scheduled for August 25th, 2019. Now, we're taking a break from our little Shopkins-sized mini-episodes to bring you a full-size Barbie Dreamhouse episode with a special guest exegete. That's right. We're so pleased to have with us today Dr. Brent Strawn. Brent taught for a few years at Asbury Theological Seminary, and then for 18 years at the Candler School of Theology at Emory University, where he was the William Ragsdale Cannon Distinguished Professor of Old Testament. Rachel and I were both fortunate to catch his final courses here at Emory before he left for his new post at Duke Divinity School. Thanks to Brent, we know more about the ancient Near East and its theological world than we could have ever asked or imagined. Brent is ordained in the United Methodist Church and is a prolific preacher, author, and speaker. He served both as a translator and a member of the editorial board for the Common English Bible. We would personally recommend to you, our listeners, his book, The Old Testament is Dying, A Diagnosis and Recommended Treatment. We kind of see this this podcast as trying to address some of the issues that Brent elucidates there in that book. And hopefully we're giving the OT kind of a, a vitamin boost and not just giving hospice care. But at any rate, uh, we, th- we'll, we think you'll like that book and we'll give you a link to that on our website. Brent, uh, welcome to First Reading. Hey, thanks for having me. I really appreciate being here. Now, uh, you're in the process of moving over to North Carolina and just wonder, how's it been? Are you feeling a little bit of separation anxiety from all of your books? This is true. <laughs> I did. I, I couldn't part completely, so I have to admit I, I brought six boxes with me on the road. <laughs> As we all do, yeah. <laughs> three were shipped and three came in the car with me. Um, you know, there, there were certain projects that needed to get done. So far, I think, though... About uh, seven or eight weeks into this uh, road trip, I've only maybe worked through about one box worth. So, <laughs> alas, alas. I feel I feel a lot better about myself then because my husband always makes fun of me for how many books I bring on vacation, and so now I can tell him that up to six boxes is reasonable. Before we get started, though, I just wanted to say, in light of the intro, in, if this is Barbie size, does that make me Ken? Because I've always kind of had a you know man crush on Ken. Though I have to say, I'm disappointed. There, I don't think there's ever been a, a, a bald Ken. We'll let you be whoever you want to be in that imagination. All right, guys? I appreciate that. I appreciate that. And if it's any consolation, I I, th- I think that Ken's hair is painted on anyway. Uh, that's true. That makes me feel better. That, because that's not that's not beyond my reach. Or, or <laughs> or beyond what I might actually do. Yeah, right. <laughs> oh, that's great. Well, why don't we get into our, our lectionary text for the week. Uh, Brent, would you be willing to read it for us? We're looking this week at Jeremiah chapter 1, verses 4 to 10. Sure. Yeah, here it is in the Common English Bible translation. The Lord's word came to me. Before I created you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I set you apart. I made you a prophet to the nations. Ah, Lord God, I said, I don't know how to speak because I'm only a child. The Lord responded, don't say I'm only a child. Where I send you, you must go. What I tell you, you must say. Don't be afraid of them because I'm with you to rescue you, declares the Lord. 
Then the Lord stretched out his hand, touched my mouth, and said to me, I'm putting my words in your mouth. This very day I appoint you over nations and empires to dig up and pull down, to destroy and demolish, to build and plant. There ends the lectionary reading. Word of the Lord. (laughs) So now, um, with the first few verses of the book of Jeremiah, which we don't get in this assigned lectionary passage, they say that Jeremiah has started his career during the reign of the Judean king, um, Josiah. So what's significant about that era of Judean history? What should we know about the historical and political context of Jeremiah to really understand this passage? Well, a couple things. I mean, you all know this as well as I do, that um, Josiah is an important king in the book of Kings and and in the history of of Judah because he's really one of the few bright points in the history of the monarchy. Josiah is the only person in the uh, whole Bible that instantiates the the Shema, the love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and strength. Um, He's said to to do this like no other, including the great David or or anybody else in the New Testament for that matter. No, No New Testament references claim that for anyone. So he's really a high point, and so Josiah is a, is a good guy, according to Kings. The, the question that's raised by the Jeremiah superscription is the chronology of the prophet vis-a-vis Josiah, and this has been a, a problem in Jeremiah's scholarship because Jeremiah's pretty much down on on Judah uh, for most of the book, and this seems to be, this seems to sit oddly with, with Josiah, who is supposedly this great king. So the question is kind of when did Jeremiah start his ministry? Did he know about Josiah and basically was he quiet during that time, supportive of Josiah? And then after Josiah, um, does he then, you know, get into it? Um, Or is the already is he unpleased during the, the reign of Josiah. So there's so there's some complicated chronological questions there, but Josiah is clearly per- portrayed in, in Kings as this wonderful king, and presumably he and Jeremiah would be majorly simpatico on mm-hmm. that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you'd think so. Mm-hmm. And the particular text that we're looking at here is, it's a, it's a call story, so it sort of fits almost a, a a literary form of this prophetic call story. Can you give us a little bit of a way that that this compares to other prophetic call stories and and how that might help us to kind of see what's going on in this text? Sure. So this is this this does follow a kind of set literary pattern and that's um has been used to go back to the previous point, by some to say, well, these are not, you know, these can't tell us anything individually about the prophets because they're set literary forms. Uh, and yet, set literary forms ha- uh, rarely are identical, and therefore there's a little bit of, you know, novelty here and there. And the novelty here and there says something about that particular literary form, of course, but perhaps also that particular, that particular uh, religious experience or engagement or something. So I, uh, I, I just want to draw that out a little bit before you continue, because I think it's really important. Um, some people think that the Old Testament is a little bit boring because it has these repetitions in it or these forms that you talk about. Um, But at the same time, like you said, the way that form is utilized and deployed can tell you something about the intention. There's um, there's interesting ways to see the distinctions between these forms, um, which tell us something about what the prophet is trying to communicate. So I just I wanted to lift up that point. I think it's really important. 
Yeah, totally. I think that's exactly right. That's sort of the dirty little secret of form criticism. You know, the right. the obvious secret is, wow, these are kind of literary forms that they knew, like like they understood that, uh, you know, a tweet could have only so many characters or a business letter had to have this these sorts of elements. They had these two. But the, the dirty little secret is no two forms are exactly alike, and yeah. the, the distinctions are revealing. Yeah? Yeah. So in terms of these prophetic call narratives or forms, I mean, uh, they're not always narratives. Like this one's not a narrative, it's a poem. Um, it, they, they've been studied by a number of people, particularly Norman Hobble in a, a well-known essay, and I think it was 1965, back, back in the late Bronze Age. And um, they have uh, elements that, that correspond across the board and they kind of include things like the introductory, the divine confrontation where the deity in, in, you know, engages the individual, the introductory word of some sort, and then a, a commission followed by an objection. The prophet never wants to be called and so always objects to the call. And then there's a reassurance uh, that the divine figure offers to the objection and then finally a sign. So these elements occur and they occur with, um, you know, regularity, with, with such frequency that um, you can really identify it as a literary type. And it occurs in uh, everything from Moses in Exodus 3, primarily, but extending into 4, Jerem- uh, Gideon in Judges 6, Isaiah in Isaiah 6, Jeremiah here, Jeremiah 1, Ezekiel 1 through 3, and even in the Annunciation to Mary in Luke chapter 1, follows, a, 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 I would say, an identical form. Oh, I- I love that. I love that you brought that up. I, I've never really thought of or heard of Mary talked about as a prophetic figure, but to put her Annunciation story in this literary form is fascinating. Yeah, and it, and it follows to a T. I've, I've wanted to, I've, I've talked about it briefly in a, a little thing I've written years ago on, on the call form, but uh, I've, I've always wanted to come back to it, though I recently discovered an essay that I think gets at it, so it may have already been done, and so I, maybe I don't need to do that, but I've always wanted to write a little piece on that. Uh, especially from an Old Testament perspective. There's all these New Testament people poaching on the Old Testament. I think it's time the Old Testament people start poaching on the New Testament. That's what I say. Mm-hmm. So anyway, that is the form. Yeah, that, that form is there. And Jeremiah's call has all these forms in it, but also some interesting uh, tweaks and, uh, you know, little uh, ticks, as it were, that are Jeremiah's own. Yeah, what are, what are those? What stand out to you as sort of the ways where the form gets bent bent a little bit? There's two primarily, I think, that, well, there's more than that, but but two that I think are particularly important that go back to your initial question, Tim, about the, the, the nature of this particular prophet and maybe his relationship with the Lord. Um, and it has to do with uh, the way Jeremiah objects to his call. And it's kind of a famous um, text because it has this line in it, I don't know how to speak because I'm only a child. In Hebrew, this is Na'ar. And this is a, this child line is really kind of famous. And, of course, it's given rise to all kinds of wonderful junior high school, you know, ministry <laughs> messages, you know, or, or late elementary school or maybe high school uh, with, uh, with scholars frequently opining, too, that this Na'ar must be about 12 years of age or 13 years of age or what have you. So, so, so Jeremiah objects like Moses, you know, Moses in one of his final objections says, you know, I don't, I have, I'm slow of tongue or I, I don't know how to speak well. So in some sense, Jeremiah picks up on that, but, but no one says something like this. I'm a not R. So the question is, and it's related as you can see to the superscription issue. I mean, how young is he when he's called? Um, 
is he just a is he just an infant during Josiah's you know great revival, um, or is he called as a young boy aware of, jo- of Josiah but doesn't actually get going till later? How how old is Anar? That's the question. But he he's the only one who does this little additional element. They all say I don't. No thanks, you know. Uh, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh? Right, that's what Moses says. Um, uh, Isaiah says, "How long, O Lord?" That's his objection. I, I want out. Um, but but Jeremiah says, um, "O Lord." He's got lament language here with this this Hebrew word, and it's uh, in Hebrew. It's great. It's kind of like. Because it's almost onomatopoeic with yeah. with English is um, you know, aha aha <laughs> no Lord aha you know oh no you know please Lord not me um, I don't know how don't I don't know how to speak because um, I'm only a boy so that's that's an interesting little element and then it the the corresponding additional element in the Lord's response is when God says don't say um, you know I am only a boy. Because where I send you, you will go, and what I command you, you shall speak. Do not be afraid. Fear not. This is a kind of a, a this is an oracle of salvation language. Fear not from them, for I am with you to deliver you. So a number of things that go on in God's response also go beyond anything God says to the other prophets. God doesn't ever say, "Do not fear," to these prophets, um, except mm. Jeremiah, in this particular form. Um, in this flow of the form. Also, this to deliver you is a plus that's not found elsewhere. So God does promise to be with people. Like, you know, uh, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh? Uh, I will be with you, right? Um, And this is the sign that I've sent you, is what God says to Moses in Exodus 3. So these little elements that that God adds seems to correspond, in my judgment, to what Jeremiah has done by claiming to be a Na'ar. And I think I, when I first started working on this passage, well, I, I worked on this passage, I have to say, way back when as an undergrad. I wrote my senior thesis project in college on the prophetic call narratives. Uh, but I didn't see this then. I only saw it later, after, not long after I started teaching at Emory, and I was reading an essay um, by my own uh, professor, my own um, dissertation advisor, Pat Miller, on prayer as persuasion. And in it, he makes this comment that... Uh, Rhetorically, a lot of prayers are trying to persuade God, of course, and one of the ways they persuade God to act is by claiming low or subservient status because prayer in Israel trades, among other things, on the notion that Yahweh cares about people who are little and insignificant and weak and wants to help them. So I suddenly, you know, kind of two and two hit together. Pat Pat doesn't talk about Jeremiah 1, but I was thinking about Jeremiah 1, and I thought, what about this not our business? Maybe this doesn't have anything to do with Jeremiah's chronological age. Maybe it's a rhetorical move by which he claims low status. So if you probe Na'ar a bit in, the, in Hebrew, you find out that it's notoriously nonspecific. We don't know when someone stops being a yeled, a child, and when they're a Na'ar. And we also know that Na'ar is used in stereotypical fashion for full-on adults. Right. Um, the servants of the king call themselves Na'ars. You know, they're they're Na'arim. They're they're servants. They're not boys. You know, they're they're grown men, presumably. They're going to be advising the king or taking care of the king, etc. And nowhere is this even clearer, I think, than in in First Kings three, when Solomon himself says, "Give your servant wisdom in his prayer," because I am only a Na'ar, and he actually adds, just to be even further, "I'm a little Na'ar." 
<laughs> well, he's old enough to be king. He's probably not prepubescent. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> and and uh, so the Na'ar thing could just be stereotypical, could purely be a rhetorical move. And I think that makes sense in light of what follows, in which case you've got to give it to Jeremiah, right? He's not stupid. It's like he's seen or knows or maybe even read, who knows, these previous call narratives. And he's like, hmm, yeah. When the dude calls, don't pick up, right? I mean, when the, when the dude calls, go straight to voicemail or because once you start talking to him, this is what Jer- Jonah does, right? Just Go straight to, to, to voicemail and head to Joppa. Vacation. <laughs> Do you think he took six boxes of books with him? <laughs> I, he, he probably did. He probably did. Uh, so Jeremiah says, though, you know, once you start talking to, to the Lord, you can't get out of these calls. There's no getting out of these calls. Unless... You do something better than these other guys have done. These other fools didn't know who they were dealing with. I know who I'm dealing with. So I'm going to not only object to the call, I'm going to object with one of the most strongest appeals ever. And God's going to have to relent, right? God has, God has special concern for these lowly, these little, these weak. Oh, Lord. No, I, do, I don't know how to speak. Because I'm only a Na'ar. And he kind of puts down the little, you know, ace uh, on, the, on the table right then. We're out. You know, we're done. I'm, I'm pretty sure we're good here. Um, but what he, what he learns is even that's not good enough, right? And so if, if what he's done I, is, in terms of the literary form, bent the genre a little bit. You know, he's not just objecting. He's lamenting. And he's lamenting with really the strongest rhetorical appeal that Israelite prayers had. He's bent that response a little bit generically. What he finds is that God is pretty good rhetorically, too. Yeah, right. Mm-hmm. God's like, I see you, but I got a full house or whatever. <laughs> you know, I don't, whatever, whatever trumps that. Um, in, in, and what God responds with is nothing less than an oracle of salvation. No longer just a promise of presence, no longer just a reassurance, but an oracle of salvation. This al-tirah, do not fear, is is often used oracle of salvation language. It's, it's got a wartime background, it seems. This is like, I'm, I'm going to be, you know, fighting right next to you or, or with you, and then no one else gets this. I am with you to deliver you that's a plus too yeah so and then and then you round it off by this this uh oracular formula the oracle of the lord i mean god's like i i see you're not are and i raise you i raise you an oracle of salvation a promise of deliverance and uh uh, an oracular utterance boom you're going i'm sorry jeremiah you're going (laughs) yeah that that also helps me uh, understand a little bit. Uh, I was a bit confused by the uh, the early part of God's response to Jeremiah, and if if Naar is really a uh, a word about his low status, then uh, God's response about the people to whom Jeremiah will be sent and the words that he'll be given is sort of like your your own assessment of your status is insignificant the status that you have is the status i'm giving you not the one that you're coming with and that's what's that's what's significant here. i like that i like that and and the, and so the the reassurance element which is what god's done here though god's bent the genre as well does always have some increased uh divine activity some sort of helpful response and you have it of course and do not fear and and uh I will deliver you, says the Lord. But I think your point is right. 
on because it's saying you will go wherever I sent you. You will say whatever I speak. You know, in other words, it's, it's going to happen. You don't, you know, you don't have to like worry about it in a sense, right? The, and, and in Hebrew, right. those the, the verbs of commissioning, I will send you, you will go, does actually front the divine agency first, which I think plays into the notion of um, reassurance, divine reassurance, that, that God's agency is usually uh, elevated in the reassurance to, to help the prophet work through. Now, why would, so you, you've said that the form is kind of standard, the God calls the prophet, says, no, Lord, not me. But what would it have been about this particular historical situation that might have caused Jeremiah to try to pull back so strongly. What was so scary about the situation to which God was calling Jeremiah? Hmm. That's a great question. I think it probably depends on the chronology somewhat, because if he gets called during the reign of Josiah, maybe, you know, maybe nothing. Maybe, maybe it's just the nature of the prophetic task as such, right? None of the prophets want to be prophets. And this is a stereotypical element. Everyone who gets called as a prophet in the Bible doesn't want it. And this is a useful point that I say in classes a lot of times. If you ever meet somebody who says, I was so thrilled to be called, you know, you're, mm, maybe you weren't called really, you know, because especially the prophets, they always end up dead before their time with no one to collect the life insurance, right? So, you know, I, it may be formulaic. It may just because the, the gravity of the prophetic call. Jeremiah is really, what, almost the longest of the three major prophets. I think Ezekiel is longer, if I remember right, in terms of number of words. Um, but in a, in a long ministry, and of course, as we continue to read, we can then deduce, well, he's in the middle of the Babylonian right and fervor uh, and and the destruction of Jerusalem and he's he's on the wrong side of the uh, politicos you know he's just he's he favors Babylon and he's in jail all the time and if he didn't have that family named Shaphan always backing him and sneaking him out the back door he would have been dead even earlier than he was so so maybe that's part of it too uh, maybe he already if he's not five years old when he's called and without watching the CNN feed, if he's older, he might not be stupid and he might realize the threat Babylon uh, poses on the horizon and that uh, he's going get, to get, get into it. He's going to be in the middle of it. Yeah. I think that's an important point to lift up to simply because um, as Christians and as preachers, when we read the Old Testament texts, especially the prophetic texts, it's it's so tempting to jump immediately to applying it to our life experience without taking into account the fullness of the context of the whatever the text might be. And I think one of the things that I would lift up about this text is just how grave the situation was, eventually anyway, that Jeremiah gets called to, that this is not necessarily a... Um, your Tuesday morning at the post office is God calling me to speak text. Like this is, this is a text for life situations where the stakes are higher. Yeah, definitely. And that's, and that's the difference between maybe a prophetic call and a pastoral one, right? Or, or a, a teaching one or something else. I mean, these, the stakes are considerably higher. They're, their life and death. And the, if we read closely, you know, a lot of the prophet, not only in the, in the objections, but sometimes there's hints here and there that they, they're not happy thereafter as well um the end of of ezekiel's call he says i I went away from the lord bitter and deeply angry i have never hit that never hit me until recently when i was rereading his call in 3 314 you know he's he's 
kind of pissed, you know, and I don't know if he's, it doesn't say exactly what he's pissed about, but, but God has told him he's going to be, you know, have this super hard head and he's going to be okay, but, but he's mad anyway, you know what I mean? And I think he's mad because of having to do this task, right? And Jeremiah um, gives us similar hints later in the book. So I think what Jeremiah does, and, and this goes back again to kind of the idiosyncrasies of the prophets, if not actually, or the prophetic texts, if not actually their personalities. He never seems to make full peace with it, you know. So in according to the prophetic call forms, when you get called, once you start talking to God, you, you end up getting talked into it. Even Jonah, who doesn't talk to God initially, gets, you know, spewed <laughs> out, vomited conveniently right on the door of Nineveh. It's remarkable how it works that way. But, uh, but with Jeremiah, you know, he, he's, anti- he, he's something anticipatory here with his aha, you know, lamenting, I don't know, and... and Pay attention to me. I'm only a little, a little tiny, insignificant person. You, you shouldn't be calling me, because again, he has later in the book these famous texts that are called the confessions, uh, which are really laments of the prophet to God, where he is, you know, lamenting, complaining about his prophetic ministry. Twelve, chapter twelve, chapter fifteen, mm-hmm. chapter twenty. There's a number of these things. Depends on how how you count them. But uh, the last one happens in fifteen. And there is the last time God responds to him about these complaints. Um, he keeps going in 20, but God doesn't respond anymore. But in 15, when he complains about his call, God just says, hey, look, you know, if you, if you stop uttering worthless words, I'll take you back. You know, quit, quit talking about <laughs> worthless stuff. Get on with it, right? Uh, these people will turn to you, not you to them. And then God says, I'm going to make you a sturdy bronze wall. They will attack you, but they won't triumph because I am with you to rescue you. So God's like, remember the call, Jeremiah, back to chapter one, that that oracle of salvation, it still stands. And God doesn't talk to Jeremiah, according to the book, directly again in terms of this response to his calling, because I think God said everything God needs to say. Um, I can't. I can't give more than an oracle of salvation. You know, I mean, I can't. I'll promise more than that. I will save you. I mean, that's that's got to be good enough. And Jeremiah evidently works through. But but with case of Isaiah or Moses or Gideon or Mary, you don't really ever hear them continuing to complain to the Lord about their calling. Only Jeremiah really does that. And yeah. so all that that is that tumultuous relationship is prefigured, is anticipated, foreshadowed already in the call narrative, which in my mind plays out to a kind of formula, if you don't mind me saying so. And that's kind of the stormier the relationship, the sweeter the communion. I mean, there's something about Jeremiah and God's relationship that is um, profoundly more developed and personal, uh, including maybe more painful than some of the other prophets. Yeah, and I think I think that uh, it works kind of backwards too. I mean, we said at the beginning that we don't know how close to the prophet himself these texts would be, and it's it's uh, you know likely or possible at least that that this call narrative was written in a way in retrospect with with the later career of Jeremiah in mind, and so we have some of that that. Uh, that tension and suffering and all of that prefigured in the call narrative here, as well as the the closeness of Jeremiah's relationship with God. I think we see that in a really 
um, physical, concrete way in verse 9. When I read verse 9, the Lord put out his hand and touched my mouth, and the Lord said to me, Herewith I put my words into your mouth. It reminded me of Isaiah's call narrative, but in that story it's an angel touching a coal to the lips of Jeremiah. And here it's divine God touching God's hand to Jeremiah's mouth. And so there's a there's an intimacy that almost is like a riff on that call story of Isaiah, which highlights that, that uh, like you said, the stormier the um, relationship, the sweeter the communion. He's touched literally by God in this moment. Yeah, that's great. You, of course, you're sounding now like a German biblical scholar and that the <laughs> Jeremiah is just a pastiche of all kinds of previously existing texts and well, well, a scribal creation. Forbid but, that. Forbid that. Let me let me stay where I am in my in my lane. But uh, uh, it is interesting. No, but, no, but I think that's right. I mean, the, the, the touching that happens in Isaiah 6 with the coal is... Um, is is prior is earlier in the call form. It seems to have to do with uh, it's what enables him, as it were, to suddenly hear the divine word. And so right. that's another, I think, point that supports your point that that in this uh, advanced, you know, objection 2.0, and then the reassurance 2.0, that that part of that reassurance 2.0 includes this direct contact by God. Um, and of course, it's also a little bit later in, in Ezekiel as well, right? When he eats the scroll. Um, yeah. So yeah, I, I love that. I think that's exactly right. And you could see these sorts of echoes, if they are intentional literary echoes, to be along the lines of what Tim said. That maybe, uh, and scholars have said this, maybe these intros, these these prophetic call forms, are intentionally designed in some ways as uh, introductions to to these books. The kind of fly in the ointment there is Isaiah 6, which doesn't occur in chapter 1, right? It comes in chapter 6, which then leads to speculation about is it a call narrative or not? And is it, uh, you know, what does that say about 1 through 5? And, and anyway, that's, that's, that's... Welcome, dear listeners, to Biblical Rabbit Trails. <laughs> that's it. That's it. Well, the other, the other place in this text that, that drew my attention as far as the... the intimacy between God and Jeremiah is back in verse 5. And actually that that verse drew our attention and our preparation quite a bit. I wonder if we could land there for a few minutes and talk about this uh, really profound statement that that God knew Jeremiah in the womb. Brent, what what do you make of that? What do you think is the significance of that kind of a statement? It's really quite fascinating, isn't it? And, and unparalleled in the in the call narratives, it it brings to mind, of course, for me a little bit of um, Psalm one thirty nine. You know, I I don't know how much we can build off of it with some contemporary issues. You know, theological issues, for instance, like predestination uh, or or some other matters. But reading it the way the words run, um, it does suggest that God's call on Jeremiah's life is in utero, right? It, it goes back to in utero or even even earlier right origin right. origins pre-existence of souls he'd be so happy right now I, I don't I don't know if he if he alluded to this or cited this text but you could imagine that um, so this call is is just so fundamental and in its point of origin uh, which God God's kind of heavy-handed here right out the gate by saying this call is kind of really inescapable that uh, I have, I've made you a prophet to the nations I like that you brought that up. And and speaking of kind of heavy-handed verbs, um, can we jump to verse 10 where there's this 
list of um, action, active verbs and um, what, they're, what they're doing there. You know, God, God overcomes Jeremiah's objection with the oracle of salvation. And then kind of in this verse 10, what tells him a little bit about what he's going to be doing. And it's no small task, right? It's uh, to um, uproot and to pull down, to destroy and to overthrow, to build and to plant. How, how do you make sense of that progression of verbs and, and what it's trying to communicate? Well, I think a couple things can be said. One, one is that um, the verbs are primarily negative, right? Uh, two to one, the prophetic task is, is a destructive one, um, a critical one, a criticizing one, to use Brueggemann's prophetic imagination, kind of a, a dismantling. Uh, and... Again, this is no doubt why no one wanted to be a prophet. Right? <laughs> I mean, it's, it's a major drag. It's not prosperity gospel. It's not telling everybody they're okay and that God loves them just the way they are. No, God doesn't love them. <laughs> a, God doesn't love them the way they are. B, uh, you know what I mean? And, and someone needs to say that every now and then, especially in the Christian church in North America, which is, according to Eric Wilson, just become happiness companies Um, and and he didn't mean it as a compliment (laughs) Uh, so you know these the the preponderance of 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 prophetic verbiage is is negative it's critical but there is also the um one-third of this kind of energizing is what uh, Brueggemann calls it the critical consciousness and and the criticizing task of the prophet and the energizing task the build and the plant and as you all know, and our listeners probably do too, is that these verbs come back later in the book. They they function as kind of light vortor, these you know, repeated words that come up to to signal what Jeremiah is about and what God is about in mm-hmm. in the in the ministry of Jeremiah. And the book does turn a kind of about halfway through, right, to to more hopeful stance. And that's the kind of sign that, you know, um, now it's build and plant time after after the exile, once the destruction has, has been uh, experienced, once all the, the, you know, the pulling down and destroying and demolishing takes place, it's time to build in the planet. So the preponderance of the, the evidence, you know, the prophetic ministry is negative. That's a really crucial point. And then the other wing, the way these verbs anticipate the rest of the book is also, I think, important. Mm-hmm. I feel it's kind of um, heading towards some advice on how to preach a text like this, but I wanted to ask you one more question before we get there. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, we've we've talked quite a bit in our conversation so far about how this functions as a call story or a call narrative for Jeremiah, but you made a comment earlier that, uh, in, in fact, this is poetry. Mm-hmm. And I wonder um, what difference that makes. I know that you've thought quite a bit about this, Brent, as far as... Um, just the, the importance of reading poetry as poetry in the Bible. And uh, if, if we do read this call poem as a call poem, what difference does that make in, in understanding what it's trying to do? Hmm. Yeah, it's a great question. I, I think in one sense it might explain, I, I guess two things, one's a formal and one's a matter of content. The formal matter would be it would help us uh, or remind us that we should pay close attention to all these words to how they're put together, how they sound, you know, the, some of the assonance that, that occurs in, in verse five with certain repetition of vowels, uh, sounds. Mm-hmm. And of course it, it is a kind of narrative poem, right? I mean, it, it tells a story, 
um, mm-hmm. characters and all the rest, but it's, it's poetic in form. Um, and maybe the, all of that is a maybe in purpose in service ultimately to memorability. Um, so that's one thing. I think the second thing in terms of content, I suppose to wonder about the episodic nature of poetry, especially, um, in non-narrative modes. I mean, this, if this is a narrative poem, it, it's not quite as episodic as something that's more lyrical, like some of what we find in the Psalms. But, but I do think that it might suggest that, okay, um, not all calls have to follow the form. You know what I mean? Um, mm-hmm. It's like the difference between Matthew and Luke's version of the Lord's Prayer, right? When you pray, say, or pray like this. You know, it's a difference between if it's a script or if it's a, if it's a pattern to emulate. And maybe mm-hmm. thinking about this as poetry suggests more of the, the pattern rather than an actual script um, so that one can find themselves, as it were, in that poem uh, about Jeremiah's call, but, but not necessarily having to match every single element uh, one-to-one. I feel like um, poetry that does have a narrative element to it like this kind of functions in that way where it elevates it. Mm-hmm. So that it's still telling the story of that particular event, yeah. but being in poetic form kind of opens it up to uh, being applicable to lots of different moments in this particular person's story, but also beyond the particular characters of the story. And especially theological ones like this, in a way they're saying this is a bit of what God's like. Mm. And so you can find your way into this poem from various from various angles. I like that. That's great. I like that too, and I think it makes sense with the reference you pulled up earlier, Brent, to Psalm 139, which has some of these similarities, and and I would I would submit too. I think has some similar kind of agony and ecstasy pieces as well. Um, Psalm 139 is one of my first loves in the Psalter. I mean, you know, when I discovered that as a teenager, it was like the greatest thing in the world. Um, And then the more I read it and the more I read scholarship on it, there's elements of almost lament to it as well, where God's hand laying upon someone can have this terrible effect as well. So um, yeah, no, I think you're right on there, Tim and Brent, that this sort of the poetic form opens this story up to some uh, resonances that we wouldn't, might not hear otherwise. Yeah, I think so. That's great. That's really nice. So as we move toward some advice for preachers who would be interested in taking up a text like this, since it's landing in the lectionary in a couple weeks uh, to be able to preach from this text, uh, one of the things that we like to do in our podcast is to uh, highlight some areas that might be pitfalls or sort of exegetical or preaching pitfalls, mm-hmm. uh, sort of easy roads to take that might lead to a dead end. And uh, what we just were, were talking about kind of comes back to me here where uh, it's important to try to find the, the ways that uh, we can see ourselves in a text like this. But I wonder how we do that, like, for example, in this text, talking about calling or vocation in general, how do we do that without losing the, the specialness of Jeremiah's own prophetic calling? Uh, that, that feels to me like a, a little bit of a tricky, mm-hmm. uh, tricky road to navigate. Do, do either of you find that too? Yeah, I think that's, that is an important thing. It's probably, probably especially for Preachers might identify too much with Jeremiah. I mean, not not wrongly, but maybe identify, and maybe people in the pews wouldn't. Um, I think at that point we'd have to do a little bit of work towards the sort of the 
priesthood and the, or in this sense the prophethood of all believers uh, you know luther's notion that every christian has a vocation uh, mm-hmm. not every vocation is an ordained one but uh, or more generally to parrot the new testament these things were written also for our sake for our instruction according to paul so i think that's something that maybe the preacher has to do a little bit of work with um, and maybe no longer assume especially because perhaps the lay people might be inclined to think i'm not Jeremiah, or conversely, that I have to be Jeremiah exactly, right? So I think I would, uh, you know, like you say, valorize Jeremiah, and yet at the same time, these moves he makes are very human moves that we can resonate with. The distress he feels over tasks that he doesn't want to do. This is, let's be face it, this is why we suck at being Christians, is because we don't really want to do the things we know we ought to do. Mm. Uh, and so that's, that's uh, it seems to me, a point of major connection. Your rabbit trails that I think go awry, which is kind of inordinate attention to the chronology of Jeremiah, how old was he, et cetera. You know, this is uh, something that preachers care about because they've gone to seminary where some seminary professor like me has taught them that that's where the juice is, you know. But it's really not. The juice isn't there. Um, the juice isn't about how old he was. In fact, it could be completely wrongheaded if Na'ar is a nonspecific term that's only there for rhetorical purposes, not for anything with regard to how old he was. Um, because, you know, again, a lot of people, and well, the Methodist, the average age of a Methodist is 60-something, right? Past the Na'ar state. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, uh, that could be a rabbit trail that, that misses the point, that kind of really makes the text only about Jeremiah. How old is Jeremiah? Where, were, where was he? What did he have to eat on Tuesday? You know, who cares, right? We want the text to be about somehow the life of faith with Jeremiah as a paradigm um, that we can emulate to some degree or who is not maybe not even somebody we emulate, but who already anticipates us in some way. Our struggles with faith, our, our avoidance of calling, our distress at God's hand on our life. Yeah. Yeah, I had a I had a similar uh, instinct, which was to take one of two forks in the road, um, and the one is to to assuming that your congregation does in fact identify with Jeremiah. The second assumes that your congregation doesn't in fact identify with Jeremiah. So in the, in the first one, um, I I said if you think your congregation might identify with Jeremiah, uh, that might actually be a preaching angle to to start by drawing out those initial shallower connections to our lives um, and then interrupting that train of thought and asking them to sort of pause it and put a pin in it and then really emphasize the high stakes nature of what Jeremiah was about. So leading um, your congregation to identify with Jeremiah's situation and then really leading them to realize how dangerous the job was that Jeremiah was doing, that speaking truth to got Jeremiah in trouble in really big ways. And so that this text is for people who might be at a fork in their lives, who might be at a crossroads, and who might be facing an ethical dilemma that has serious consequences. That's one way to go. My second preaching angle is for people who don't identify with Jeremiah, and maybe even don't like Jeremiah because they don't want to hear truth spoken to them. 
Uh, we always like to be the ones who are speaking truth to power. We don't necessarily like to be the power that is hearing truth spoken. So what if you were to flip it on your head and talk about who are the people in your lives who are speaking truth to you that you don't want to hear and that they might be God-ordained in some way or God-sent in some way in a way that you really need to hear and to use Jeremiah in that way as a wake-up call for your congregation. I like that a lot. It, and it kind of helps, <clears throat> goes back to Tim's point about the porous nature of the poetry allows one to kind of enter it more than one way. Yeah. And your your last point there, Rachel, makes me think of the fact that, you know, especially in Jeremiah is where we, we learn that if you're going to act the prophet, if you want to have <laughs> a decent run at it, you need to have some people who are willing to back you up <clears throat> and and get you out of tight spots. The prophetic task is on the one hand, you know, inaugurated by the deity, but in some sense, I mean, not to be completely real politic about it, but it's facilitated by an environment that can hear the prophetic word um, or by people who will back the prophet up. If if a pastor wants to venture into the prophetic, that is, they better have some Shaphanites in the crowd <laughs> who are, who are going to back him or her up when the Shinola hits the fan after service, right? Um so that the pastor's not solo. Because if the pastor's solo, she's probably going to end up in stocks all night. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> How about you, Tim? What'd you come up with for preaching angles? Yeah, I think the one that, that stood out to me in preparation and then in our conversation goes back to Jeremiah's objection to the call and his sense of, of being a na'ar. Even in, in our conversation here today, I felt like, man, the older I get, the more na'ar I feel. Yeah, right? <laughs> <laughs> and... Uh, I can I can kind of identify with that in the 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 desire to downplay my own skill or ambition towards whatever calling is coming my way, and uh, I I think that might be something that a preacher could preach from uh, a a call to to a congregation to not underestimate what God can do through them because it doesn't depend on their skills or their level of ambition or necessarily their level of education or charisma that the call of God comes to the prophet or to any of us because of what God knows before we were even formed in the womb. So it's all dependent on God's grace and God's calling and God's power to accomplish whatever it is that we're being called to. To me, that that felt like the seed of a sermon. Oh, amen. Yeah. You're you're turning you're turning Lutheran on me, Tim. I like this. I like oh, this a brother. lot. <laughs> <laughs> well, and and kind of in that same vein, that whole notion of how Jeremiah objects in this way, that honesty about his not our status, or maybe he's making it up, <laughs> but yeah, <his laughs> about his his insignificance and smallness elicits an even better response from God. And, you know, I, I just think that the average, maybe I'm wrong about this. I hope I'm wrong. I think the average North American churchgoer has no conception of how honest they can and should be with God and how poor, thin, and miserable their religious experience is because they're not honest with God. So Yeah, and, and just to, to riff on that too, that's often modeled by pastors and preachers. So how honest and vulnerable in a safe way we can be with our congregation um, will maybe help elicit that from people as well. So That's right, that's right. Oh, fun. Well, that sounds like a great place to end our conversation. And this has been really wonderful to talk with you about this text, Brent. So thanks so much for coming on the podcast with us. 
Thanks for having me. I'll still keep out hope for a Old Testament bald Ken doll. Yes. <laughs> it was just great to be on the podcast. Thanks for having me on and to keep up the great work, y'all. Yeah, thanks. Thank you, Brent. A note to you all, our dear listeners, if you would uh, like more information about Brent's work and what he's done, remember we'll post a link to his book and his bio on our website, firstreadingpodcast.com. Until next week, I'm Tim McMinch. And I'm Rachel Wren. Happy preaching. Hey, friends. A couple little postscripts to this week's episode. First of all, we want to give credit to Blue Dot Sessions for the music behind Brent's reading of this week's lectionary text. And then we wanted to give you a heads up that this dip into the first chapter of Jeremiah is just the first of several weeks in a row in Jeremiah in the lectionary. This would be a great opportunity to craft a little sermon series that follows the prophet through a variety of passages in the book. We'll be here each week with some insights for you, and we'll be closing out our own series in Jeremiah with the inimitable Dr. Carol Newsom, who will be our guest in just about a month. If you've been doing a lot of sort of ping-pong around the scriptures with your sermons, then following one book for a while like this could be a nice change of pace for you and your congregation and really build some momentum as you spend some time with one of the Bible's most colorful prophets. We hope you'll give it a go. Anyway, thanks for listening, and we'll talk to you next time.